for those who are visiting us, we, we have been studying the doctrine of the church. It's rare for us to, to leave a book of the Bible. We always go book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But sometimes it's important for us as a church to just stop and deal with some important subjects. Uh, one of my greatest cri- critics, the people inside my home, I asked Bella yesterday, I said, so have you been enjoying the series on the church? And she said, actually, I prefer when you go book by book and verse by verse. It's, and we will b- go back there. But I think it's important, especially with new people coming and old people in the church, not old folks, but old people, old members in the church. You not know, talk about your age, the time they have been in church here for a long time. So I think it's important for us to be reminded of the doctrine of the church And we spent a long time looking at the nature of the church. What the church is according to the scriptures. The nature of the church. Because before we talk about the mission of the church, we need to understand the nature of the church. What the church is all about. And we saw throughout the the studies in the past here, that the church is God's household. is the assembly, the ecclesia, the gathering of God's people. It's God's temple. And last Lord's Day, we saw the church as the body of Christ. And if you were not here last Lord's Day, I, I highly recommend you to go back and, and watch the, the sermon. It's very important to understand because from now on, we are going to take a turn in our series. And you're going to start dealing with very practical matters in the life of the church. Uh, as the title, you can see the title of the message, Our Duties. Our duties, responsibilities, and privileges as church members. So that's, that's what we're going to be dealing now. What are our privileges, our duties as Christians, as church members? And I want to invite you to open your Bibles to First John. First John. Uh, that's towards the end of the New Testament. Finish the letters of Paul. Then you move to what they call the general epistles or the Catholic epistles, meaning they, they had a, a, a broader range of receptors. So you come to First John, and I invite you to open your Bibles in First John chapter three. And if you can, would you stand, please, out of reverence and respect towards God's word? And starting verse eleven, we read, "For this is the message you have heard from the beginning." That we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was one of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we accept the altar call, because we pray the sinner's prayer, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we must lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love Abide in Him. Little children, let us love not just in word or talk, but in deeds and in truth. 
Now chapter 4, verse 7. That's a theme that John is developing through this letter. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You may be seated. I chose to begin this sermon today with some words. Some words that were carefully and intentionally weighted in the scales of the New Testament. Privilege, responsibility, and duty. Privilege, that's a word that we all like. We all like privileges, right? A special right, advantage, or immunity granted or available only to a particular person or group. We like privilege. How about responsibility? The quality or state of being responsible, such as a moral, legal, or mental accountability. And the word duty sounds a little bit heavier, but it's basically the same as responsibility. A moral or legal obligation. Let me ask you, for those here who profess to be Christians, for those who profess to be born of the Lord, do you have duties and obligations towards other Christians? Are you, who profess to be a Christian, under a moral obligation towards other Christians? Do you have obligations with other Christians that supersede your supposedly personal American freedom? Do you have an obligation and duty towards other Christians that surpass and transcend your personal desires, your non-essential convictions? Do you? You need to answer that. That's very important. Do you have duties and responsibilities? Well, let me ask the members of this church, the members, those who officially have become members of this church, what are your obligations and duties towards this local congregation? What are the responsibilities that belong to you as a member of this church? What is your duty towards the other members? Brothers and sisters, as I said, these words were carefully, intentionally weighted, measured against the New Testament. That's the, the sermon that many people will feel uncomfortable. And that's the sermon, uh, not just today, but the next ones that you might say bye to some people. And you never see them again here in this church. Because you start dealing with things that are in our hearts. In a day when Christianity is treated just like a grocery shopping store, they can go to different stores and pick up whatever you want, whatever you're feeling like. The terminology of obligation, duty, responsibility sounds really heavy and unbiblical. But brothers and sisters, as we will see here, duties, obligations, responsibilities, it's ABCs of Christian life. It's ABCs of the Christian life. In Romans chapter 13, and I have right here for you to see, Romans 13, 8, Paul says, Oh, no one anything, and I don't believe that Paul is talking about that you cannot, have, you cannot borrow any money from anyone. I don't believe that's the main theme, and we don't have time here. When you go to Romans, we can deal with that. Here, what he says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. The word there, oh, is implying that we all love to each other. Ophelo means to be obligatory in view of some moral or legal requirement. To be under obligation. And Paul develops that in chapter 15, verse 1. He says, we who are strong, and we love to be the strong ones in the church, right? The privilege of having the deep convictions of Christ 
And then comes the responsibility here. We who are strong have an obligation of failure to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Everett Harrison, in his commentary in Romans, he writes the following, Ought is not to be watered down as though it means the same as should. It speaks not of something recommended, but of obligation. About chapter 15, verses 24 through 27, Paul says, and that's just the book of Romans, okay? Paul says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. It's very clear, very clear what he's longing from those churches in Rome. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. Who are the saints? Christians there. Christians. Christians who live in Jerusalem. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they are pleased to do it. And indeed, they owe it to them. Same word. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So for Paul, it's very clear Christians have obligations to each other, to one another have duties, responsibilities to one another. And let me just, before somebody pervert what I'm saying, the duties and obligations, they never produce salvation, okay? Your duties and obligations do not produce salvation. You're saved by grace, by faith in Christ. That's not of yours. That's God's doing. It's a great privilege to be saved by grace, to be saved by mercy alone. But with this great privilege comes responsibilities, duties. You guys, most of you, I believe all of you here are American citizens. It's a great privilege. And I'm speaking as one who knows. I know very well the privilege you have of living in this country and having the, all these things for you. But with this privilege comes responsibilities. You're not free to do whatever you want. At least you should not be. So, and, and as we transfer that into the kingdom of heaven... We are transferred by grace from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of heaven. And now we are citizens of heaven. But this privilege brings with it duties, responsibilities. And I would say, moving to the next one, as we think about the duties and obligations and responsibilities in the New Testament, there are hundreds of commandments to Christians in the New Testament. People think that there are no commandments in the New Testament. That's law. That's old stuff. I'm free. Sorry, brother. You need to go back and read your Bible. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of commandments to Christians in the New Testament. But I think we can and we must summarize and condense all the commandments and obligations imposed by Jesus upon us into one major duty or obligation to love one another. I think if we can have one major duty, one major obligation. The umbrella term here that is love one another. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. We saw Romans 13.8, Hebrews 13.1, let brotherly love continue. First Peter 1.22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. First Peter 2.17, love the brotherhood. 
First Peter 4.8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. And there are many, many other passages in the New Testament that commands us, obliges us to love one another. One commentator, he's a scholar in, in, in Paul's letters, he says, For Paul, loving others is the single most important characteristic of the Christian life and the heart of the Christian living. Loving others is only the appropriate ethical response to the divine love shown in the gospel. Because you are loved by Christ, you ought to love others. The Apostle John, he was in the upper room when Jesus showed his great love towards his disciples by washing their feet and later dying for them. And he heard the words of Jesus. John 13, 34-35 A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I don't know about you, but when I was reading that, new? That's old. In the Mosaic Law, he had to love your neighbor. So you need to think, why is Jesus saying that's new? New because he's establishing a new covenant. It's a new covenant. With a new covenant, you have new commands, new laws. So it's new because there is a new covenant. And when you think about a new covenant, there is a new community of people. So that's why it's new. It's not just loving the Jewish brothers. Now you need to love the Gentile brothers also. It's new because there is a new pattern or standard. As I have loved you, not just as your dad loved you, or as your mom loved you. As I loved you. That's the pattern. That's the standard. You are to love one another. How did Jesus love you? You need to answer that. How did, how did He love you? How does He love you? Real love, selfless, forgiving, forbearing, affectionate, visible. And that's how you are to love one another. And it's new also because it's for the public to see and judge. Look how He says, By this... All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Actually, he's saying the world is supposed to look at you and judge you to make sure that you love one another. That's what Jesus is saying. People must look at your lives and say, wow, they indeed follow Jesus. Look at how they love each other. John Angel James, he was a Puritan, he writes, and I don't have there. In the best and purest ages of the church, the virtue of love was shining so brightly in the character of the members of the church. It was so conspicuous in all their conduct, was expressed in actions, so replete with noble, unselfish, and heroic affection, as to become a proverb with surrounding pagans, and call forth the well-known exclamation among the pagans, See, behold, how these Christians love one another. That's what pagans used to say. Behold how they love one another. Why? Because they love each other. But the Apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he develops this teaching from John chapter 13. And I think he goes on, and not only outside the church, but inside the church, love is supposed to be the instrument of measuring if a person is truly saved or not. So he says in 1 John 2, verses 9 through 11, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. 
Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. First thing, remember John is writing to local churches. The brothers here are primarily the brothers in those local congregations, in those local churches. And he says, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, I don't hate my brother. That's the first thing that comes into our minds and our hearts. Is that selfish lawyer standing and say, you don't hate your brothers and sisters. You're not angry at them. You're not bitter at them. But what John is developing here is that you are either loving or hating. You are either proactively involved, building up, loving, serving the brothers, or you are hating by indifference. Being indifferent to your brothers and sisters is to hate them. There's no neutrality. There's no neutrality. Lack of proactivity, lack of proactive love is, according to the Lord, hating. How about John chapter 3, verses 14 through 18 that we read before? John goes on and he says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. He's developing those themes. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. By this we know love. It's not up to you to decide what love is. Okay? You don't define love. By this we know love. That he lay down his life for us. And we must, we must lay down our lives for the brothers. What is to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters? I was reading this passage to the kids last night. They said, do I need to die for my brothers and sisters? Maybe. Maybe the, the occasion will require you that, to lose your physical life. But you, you remember where John is getting this text from. John chapter 10, the good shepherd. The good shepherd, what does the good shepherd do? He lays down his life for the sheep. To lay down your life for the sheep, what's language used for shepherds? Why? What does it imply to lay down your... Does it mean that the shepherd had to die for his sheep all the time? No, it meant that his life, his lifestyle was one of laying down for his sheep, always caring for them, always guarding them, always guiding them, always protecting them, always involved with them. He had no other life outside that life of caring for the flock. One scholar says, the phrase to lay down your life is used elsewhere in Greek where it refers to the taking of a risk for another. Even hazarding one's life for another. Let me ask you, and that's a question very important for all of us, is that the way I love my brothers and sisters? Is that how I love my brothers and sisters? That I'm willing, that I'm laying down my life for them. Do you spend your life caring for the members of your church? Are you willing to take risks and even hazard your life for these brothers and sisters? This is love. And we know what love is, John says, by laying your life down for the brothers and sisters. And John makes very clear that whoever does not have this love for the brothers and sisters in their churches abiding what? Death. Death. So maybe... Today you came here and you are ignorant of these things. 
So you have no excuse anymore because it's right here and you need to reflect about that. Is that how I love? Is that how I love the brothers and sisters? To lay down my life like a shepherd. I care for them. I live for them. My life is surrounded by these people. For John, there is no neutrality. Either loving or hating. There's no such thing. Oh, I just plan to come to this church and enjoy good teaching. There's no such thing as that. Or I just come to the church to learn about the Bible. There's no such thing as that. Or I just plan to attend the church whenever I feel like. Or this one. I, I just don't like people in my life very much. You know, I have a hard time having people involved with my life. I don't like that very much. What does John say? Actually, you are abiding death. You have no life. If your heart has no aspiration of loving and dying for a community of people, it's an indication that you are dead in your sins. Or you're ignorant and now you're being formed. And now that information will bring a transformation in your life. That's my prayer. So we could say that the duty, the greatest duty and responsibility of Christians in the church is to love one another. Love the brothers and sisters. That's very different from how we see church, no? Oh, for me, church is just coming on a Sunday morning, sitting down with these people who I don't know very well, just enjoying some good music. I hope it's going to be good, the music, and then listening to a good preaching. If the preaching is not good, I'm out of here. That's how most people see church. Yeah, coffee. Is that how John defines Christianity? So, we know that we must love one another. That's the greatest duty and responsibility. But how do we do that? How do we love one another? How are you to obey Jesus' command to love the members of your church? That's a very important question. Can you imagine if this question was open for your personal interpretation? Can you imagine if you are the one who defines love? You see, God is so loving. God is so merciful that He doesn't leave up to us to define love. That would be chaotic. Love is not a self-defining uh, thing that you create and come up with in your mind or in your heart. I just don't feel like that's loving. That's why you hear all the time, especially as pastors in the church. I remember many years ago in Brazil, as a church, you had a very hard decision to excommunicate a member of the church. And I remember this person coming to me and saying, that was not loving. That was not loving. To which I reply. In whose standard? Do you define what loving is? Are you now in the place of God to define what loving is? I just don't feel like. There are many things I don't feel like. There are many days when the alarm goes off at 5 o'clock and I don't feel like getting up. I need you. There's truth behind me. Books to read. Papers to write. Things to do. So we need to be very careful. Because you always hear, we need to be more loving. The church needs to be more loving. But who is defining the loving here? Is it God who is defined or it's you? So God defines so how we are to love one another. And how do we love one another? By going through the New Testament and seeing all the commandments, all the obligations, all the duties, all the responsibilities that God places upon us. That's just His way of saying that's how you love one another. The New Testament shows that God's commands for us to love one another is expressed manifested in different ways, through words, through works, at scheduled meetings of the church, and outside church gathering. 
to different age groups, to church leaders. But the basic, the basic, when you read, when you gather all the New Testament commandments, you see that's in the context of a local church. It's in that context that we have all these commandments to show love to one another. The local church is not one of many options. Instead, it's the primary instrument that God chose to accomplish His plan and to show His love to the world now through Jesus' body. So the local church is God's theater where He displays His love towards others. And it's in this theater, the local church, with people who willingly decided to love one another, support one another, pray for one another, in order that the gospel may be glorified, that people may be saved. It's in this context that we see the different ways that we are to love one another. And I want to just touch one, one commandment today in the New Testament that shows how you are to love one another. And that's the obligation and the privilege of welcoming one another. Look at Romans 15:7. One of the ways that we obey Christ's command to love one another is by welcoming your brothers and sisters. Romans 15:7, Paul says, "Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God." Now think about the churches in Rome and you read Romans 13, Romans 14, and you see that there are some divisions there. The Christians with a Jewish background and the Christians with a Gentile background, they're not getting along very well. Do you remember? And look how Paul says. It doesn't say, just bear with one another. Jesus is coming soon. You're going to die soon. So just bear for now. Put up with one another. No. It says, welcome. Welcome one another. The word welcome, I think I have here, the Greek word pros, lambanomai. To accept the presence of a person with friendliness. To welcome. To receive or to have as a guest. You have the root word there, lambano, for grasping or seizing someone. And the idea behind here is of taking hold of people and bringing into your life. That's how you welcome. Not just saying you are welcome. You are welcome here. That's great. The picture here is much deeper than that. It's to take hold of that person and bring that person into your life. Look at how Paul raises the bar. He says, welcome one another. How? How are you to welcome one another? As Christ welcomed you, received you. Whoa, that's a high standard. Wait a second. As Jesus received me, I'm supposed to receive my brothers and sisters in my church? Are you serious? Can you imagine those Christians in Rome? Wait a second. But he eats big. Welcome him into your life. Paul, are you serious? When I'm barbecuing, I cannot barbecue anymore. The pork loins. No. You welcome him into your life. You receive him. As Christ received you. And you need to answer, how did Christ receive you? Did he have a hidden agenda behind? How did Christ receive you? Holy love. Outstretched arms. Offering the best. With suffering. With pain. No hypocrisy. No selfish desires. Actually, He calls you His bride. And how do you welcome a bride? Into your heart. That's how Paul says you are to welcome one another in the church. You are to receive. You are to receive one another. As Christ received you. That's a high standard. Yes, it is. And He doesn't lower the standard. 
he keeps the standard there. Look what Paul says to the Corinthians. Make room. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you. For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. That's how you are to receive one another into your hearts. Look at the next, the next passage. Philippians. Philippians 1, 6-8. Paul says, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you, I possess you in my heart. Not in my spare time, in my Sunday morning time. I have you in my heart, in my cardia, the center of emotions, the center of life, the center of thinking. That's where you are in my life. That's what Paul is saying. We are to hold each other so close to us inside our hearts, the center of our lives. Is that the Christianity that you want? Is that the Christianity that you want? That's the biblical Christianity. If you want just a, a thing that's superficial, where you just come whenever you feel like, and you have no accountability, no responsibility, you need to find another church and another religion. Just stop professing to be Christian. Find something else. Because it's very clear. How do you make room in your heart? Think about bringing things into your home. You need to make space there. Right? You need to make space. You need to rearrange things. You need to move things. You need to throw away some things. And that's what you need to do in your heart. You need to remove some things that are there. Replace things. Otherwise, the people that matter the most will not be there. And will always be the superficial relationship. Let me ask you, who is in your heart? Who is in your heart? Are the Pavons, Nestor and Ruth in your heart? Are the Baumans in your heart? In the center of your thinking, of your feeling, of your living? Are the Noctigals in your heart? Is Abby in your heart? The decisions you make, the things you're going to do, you're thinking about the body, these people. This is how you are to fulfill the obligation to love one another. By welcoming, receiving one another into your heart. When you're celebrating something, who are the people who you want to be there? When you're mourning something, who are the people who you want to be there? Are the members of this church the first people to pop in your mind and in your heart? Welcome one another. Receive one another into your heart as Christ received you. And then He gives the purpose for the glory of God. It's not so you feel good about yourself, so you feel just the people you feel comfortable with, just the people you like. No. Welcome one another into your hearts for the glory of God, Paul says. So we are, we are to welcome one another into our hearts. Second, we are to show that we have welcomed one another into our hearts by welcoming one another with physical gestures. We demonstrate, and we can go to the next one if we are able to, but we demonstrate that we have, here's how we show that we have indeed received each other into our hearts. By how we treat them with our hands and arms. We are not ghosts. We are not disembodied spirits. God gave us bodies. And we show things through our bodies. And one of the ways, one of the ways that we show that we fulfill our obligation of loving one another, receiving one another, is how by we greet one another. We have all these passages, all these commands 
in the New Testament about greeting one another with a holy kiss. Look at that. Romans 16.16 Greet one another with a holy kiss. That's a command. 1 Corinthians 16.20 Imagine divided churches. Here's Paul's solution. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 2 Corinthians 13.12 Greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Thessalonians 5.26 Greet all the brothers. All the brothers. Not just the ones you like, just the ones that smell good, just the ones that you feel comfortable with. All the brothers with a holy kiss. Greet one another, 1 Peter 5.14, with the kiss of love. Let me quote, and I have the, the slide there. One commentator, he says, The word for kiss, philema, is rooted in love, phil, in the, in the love word group. Here it consists of the kissing of people of both sexes. Kissing was hardly normal within Greco-Roman context. Kissing was a family matter. Yet even between married couples, public displays of affection were considered socially awkward. Within Judaism, kissing was reserved for family members, but was hardly common. In fact, there is no basis in ancient texts Jewish or Greco-Roman outside the New Testament for the transformation of the kiss into a sign of religious community. For members of a congregation to kiss one another was not simply a show of affection. It was the affirmation that the church is the true family. The martyrs of Carthage went to their execution but first kissed one another that they might consummate their martyrdom with the kiss of peace. The holy kiss became a part of the early liturgy Justin Martyr places it just before the communion. At least as early as the 4th century, it was taught. Then let man, then start changing things. Then let man give the man, and the women give the women the Lord's kiss. By the time of Augustine, not only was the kiss same sex, the sexes were segregated in church. It starts developing. But when you go back early, the kissing was a greeting saying, I receive you, I love you, you are my family member. It was a declaration that they had fully and completely welcomed one another into their own hearts as members of their own family. It was a physical demonstration of loving affection and heartfelt concern for one another. One scholar says, after collecting hundreds of references to early, early Christian kissing, I found that the kiss was one of the most prevalent features of early Christianity. And notice how this kiss is described as holy. Not erotic, not sensual, not sexual, but a holy, a loving kiss. Holy because it's set apart to the Lord. It's set apart from the world. It's not erotic. It's not sensual. It's holy. God is holy. Jesus is holy. And you think about why. Why they're commanded to greet one another with a holy kiss. How can you place your face against someone else's face when you have bitterness against that person and you have anger towards that person? You see, the kiss was a way of saying, I have no hypocrisy. And that face to face, the hug, think about hug, heart to heart. My heart's clean, filled with love for you. It forces a right relationship with one another. How can you hug someone, placing heart against heart, face against face, and yet have something against their brother or sister? That's why the kiss must be holy, true, real, without hypocrisy. 
Judas' case was a case of hypocrisy. So he's saying to the churches that were divided, Paul commands them to kiss one another, because the closeness of their bodies must reflect the closeness of their hearts. We are a family in Christ. We belong to one another. Why are we arguing? Why is there a division here? Uh, think about myself. When Rachel and I argue, before we can hold hands and pray, we need to deal with things. Think about the physical gesture. You need to deal with things. That's the whole point. You're going to give a hug, a kiss. Things must be dealt with. Do not have hypocrisy. The hug, the physical gesture of unity of heart. And Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. But you don't know the home I was raised. My dad never kissed me. My mom never kissed me. Does Paul give exceptions here? Actually, if you're raised in a bad home, you don't need to show that. It doesn't matter. I have German blood. We don't even hug each other. Who cares? Who cares? It's a gesture of worship that all the members of the church must exercise in holiness and love. And I know it varies from culture to culture. In Brazil, people kiss each other. Here, hug. We hug each other. Some people are awkward. They put the shoulder. Oh, I don't like hugging. The hug is to show I love you. I'm so glad that you're here. My heart's going out to you. And there is this hug, the unity of hearts. I love you. So, so many people coming late, leave quickly, don't greet anyone. That's not the life that Christ wants from you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So many people come late, leave quickly, never demonstrate what's... Actually, they demonstrate what's in their heart. By coming late, leaving quickly, you're demonstrating that these people are not in your heart. That you actually don't care that much about seeing them and loving them. So, 1 Thessalonians 5.26, greet all the brothers, all the brothers, with a holy kiss. And last, that's the last one. We are to welcome into our hearts, into our arms, and last, into our homes. I don't know if we can go back there. We have, yes, right there. Welcome one another into our homes. One of the ways that we obey God's command to love one another Welcome one another into our hearts is by welcoming one another into our homes. The most, one of the most private areas of our lives. Look what Paul says. Romans 12.13 Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek. Seek to show hospitality. The word there, seek, very powerful word, to do something with intense effort to achieve a goal. Requires effort and purpose on the part of the one performing the action. How much effort have you been putting in welcoming the members of this church into your homes? This is not an option, brothers and sisters. That's not optional. It's a command. That's a command. But you don't know my home. Is there, are there exceptions here? Are there exceptions? I have a tiny home. Who cares? I have a messy home. Organize the home. Welcome one another. Seek! Make effort! How much effort have you been making to have your brothers and sisters in your home? Hospitality is the way you declare your love by serving others, preparing a meal, cleaning up afterwards, spending time, spending our money. First Peter 4.9 Show hospitality! It's not optional. It's a command. Show hospitality to one another. How? Without grumbling. Without grumbling. Interesting, no? And what's more interesting is the context of both passages. I was reading yesterday, 
the context of Romans 12 and 1 Peter 4 is love. It's the command to love one another. And then Paul and Peter, they shift gear and they show how we are to love one another by showing hospitality to the brothers and sisters. We show that we have received each other by receiving them into one of the most private areas of our lives, our homes. So show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The Greek word there for grumbling speaks of a secret displeasure, not necessarily with a verbal manifestation. It refers to a grumbling, complaint. It refers to a heart issue. It's in the heart of the person. The discontentment in bringing people into your homes to serve them. Why do people grumble? Why do people grumble in their hearts about having other people over into their homes? It's work. You've got to serve, man. <laughs> You've got to serve. <laughs> You've got to serve others. And sometimes the people you're inviting over, that you should be inviting, are not the people whom you have the most fun with. And it's okay. That's how it should be. Because if you're just inviting people whom you have fun with, that's idolatry of the self. So you are pleased. So you feel good about yourself. It affects the whole family. Husbands, wives, sons, daughters, they all must serve together. But it's when we invite people over that we show them, I cannot get enough of you. I want you in my home. I love you so much that I want you in my home. I want to serve you. I want you to sit at my table with my family because you are my family too. And honestly, after pastoring for many years, you start noticing the signs of people. Of people who are either in the darkness or about to leave the church. And they show those signs that you are not in their hearts. First of all, they avoid you. They avoid eye contact. They avoid you. The holy kiss, the hugging. And then you also see that there's never the inviting of members of the church over to their home. That's a great sign that their hearts are closed. And then it's no surprising when you just don't see them anymore. Alexander Straw, he writes in the Hospitality Command, the Hospitality Commands, he writes, Hospitality fleshes out love in a uniquely personal and sacrificial way. Through the ministry of hospitality, we share our most prized possessions. We share our family, home, finances, food, privacy, and time. Indeed, we share our lives. So hospitality is always costly and should be costly. Through the ministry of hospitality, we provide friendship, acceptance, fellowship, refreshment, comfort, and love in one of the richest and deepest ways possible for humans to understand. Unless we open the doors of our homes to one another, the reality of the local church as a close-knit family of loving brothers and sisters is only a theory. Only a theory. The open doors of our homes, open, open arms, receiving people into our homes is a reflection of our open hearts that they are inside our hearts, that we love them. And that's not optional, brothers and sisters. These things here are commands in the New Testament. They are commands in the New Testament obligations, duties of all Christians. So God has placed upon us, members of Gracious Cross, the duty and responsibility of loving one another, and we don't decide how we are to love one another. You don't come up with your ways of loving one another. God has established how we are to love one another. And as we saw, one of the ways is by welcoming, receiving, taking to our hearts the members of the church. As Paul said, it's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. Some of you will argue, but people will hurt me. They will break my heart. 
If I have people in my heart, they will break my heart. The only way to not have a broken heart is to have a, a hardened heart, a cold heart. The world is full of people like that. That's not the Christian heart. So are you saying that I need to be vulnerable? That people will hurt me? That people will break my heart? That will cry? Yes. But I thought Jesus wants me happy. Doesn't Jesus want me happy? Receive one another as Christ received you. You break His heart all the time. You hurt Him all the time with your idolatry. You grieve Him all the time. Are you better than Christ now? So welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. So let our lives here in this church be bound by the lives of these people. Take one another into our hearts, the seat of our emotions, the decisions we make. We are thinking about this body, these people whom God placed us together. Every morning, I pray for you guys. Not because it's a duty in the sense that I just need to do that. But because I love you. Because you are in my heart. You are in my heart. And I hope that we'll say to each other, I pray for you because I have received you into my heart. When I see you, I rejoice, I smile. Why? Because you are in my heart. You are part of my life. As Paul says, to die or to live. When I see you and I come to hug you, it's because you are in my heart. And I love putting my heart against yours and embracing you and showing you my affection, my love towards you. Because you are in my heart. Because I have received you as Christ received me. Despite all your weakness, despite all your shortcomings, despite all your failures, I love you. And I love having you at my home because I can't get enough of you. Just Sunday morning, just Wednesday night, that's not enough. I need you. I need you in my life. I love having you. We are so different. And yet, I love you so much. This is Christianity. This is Christianity. Don't tell me you're a Christian because you know all the Puritan theology. Because you have memorized the 1689 Baptist Confession. No. You show that you are a Christian by obeying these things here. Welcoming one another into your hearts. Loving them. And as we will continue to see, this loving is manifested in very different ways. But today, for now, I think it's enough for us to go home and work on that. Maybe even now, even today, invite someone over. I love you. I have not shown my love towards you. Please forgive me. You are welcome to come to my home. Let us pray. Father, we, we thank you that you loved us first. And you set a standard example of what love is. And we pray that you would help us. Help us to love as Jesus has loved us. Help us to welcome one another, Lord, into our hearts. Lord, that's hard because you have so much junk in our hearts. We have so many things that are worthless and useless. So help us to work in our hearts in order to bring what matters the most. These people whom you died for when you place in our lives to, to be of help and service towards us. Help us to show each other that we have welcomed them into our hearts by the time we spend with them, by the way we talk to each other, by the, the way we greet one another. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for not being faithful to You. And help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.